0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you this morning, if you would, to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3, we find ourselves this morning coming to the very end of our study of the first few chapters here of uh, Revelation, the study we've called Seven Letters. Uh, we come to the final of the seven churches that Christ had a message for, and uh, we bring this series to a conclusion, beginning in verse 14, following all the way down to 22. Jesus says, and John writes these words. He says, to the angel in the church at Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches let's pray together lord we we come to the the last and final church and we've uh, we've been challenged in these in these last six weeks as we've uh, sort of gotten a, a bird's eye view of your performance evaluation in the life of six churches and today number seven we've seen in this lord your kindness and your grace and your perseverance with your people but we've also seen in it lord your seriousness and we've seen with with great sobriety Lord how you have come to churches and spoke truth that was hard to hear in many cases in fact threatened judgment that was severe and yet your threats Lord were not meant to uh, to be threats that were executed they were threats meant to draw your people to repentance and faith so that they might avoid the threat because you're a gracious God who's long-suffering and faithful. And so today, Lord, as we look at this final church, we have one last opportunity to reflect at our own church and reflect on our own lives and our own contribution to the life of the body of Christ. And Lord, as we come to the last, it's the most severe and, and perhaps the most penetrating for us. So we pray, Lord, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts that are open to true evaluation of ourselves speak to us by your spirit draw us to respond as we need to that your glory might be on display in us and through our church we pray these things in christ's name amen you don't have to turn there but back in luke chapter 12 Beginning in verse 16, we, we jump into the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is teaching his people and those who've gathered around him in parables. He's telling stories that, that convey a spiritual truth. And on this particular occasion, Luke records for us these words. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. They thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a, it's a sad story that Jesus tells. It's a story that pictures a man who has worked hard farming. And he's brought in tremendous harvest. In fact, the, 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 the return that he's gotten on his labor is so significant that it presents to him a problem. What was the problem? The problem was he had so much that he had no room to store it. And so it's a real problem, right? To, to bring in so much income that you have nowhere to put it, that you have to figure out some solution to that problem. And so he thinks to himself, self, what am I gonna do with this thing? And he says, aha, I got it. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to fill those up. And when those are filled up, I'm going to have plenty of stuff, and that's exactly what he did. And once I've got that all filled up, I'll have plenty to coast for the rest of my my life. I can just sit back, I can chill out, I can relax, I can eat, I can drink, I can be merry. It's a man who is living his life with no thoughts of God. He's a man who's living his life in utter self-sufficiency, self-dependence. He's got a life plan, he's got a business, and he's working his plan, and he's working his business, and it's working out so far, and his business is working out today, he's planning his future, yet he's planning his future with no regard for God. He's got his plan, he's storing up his wealth, for his retirement, and he's storing it up, and once he gets it stored, he's gonna relax and eat, drink, and be merry. That's his plan. It's a plan that's not altogether different from the American dream, in fact, is it? You could say he's an American way too early in the wrong part of the world. He thinks it's a good plan. It's a plan that would be popular in his day. It's a plan that's popular in our day. The problem is when Jesus evaluates his plan, he has a different view, He doesn't say, man, you're a smart guy. You figured out how to solve that problem, how to store up more stuff so that you get plenty for your retirement. What he says is, you're a fool. You're an absolute fool. In fact, you're gonna die tonight. And all this stuff you prepared and laid up, who's gonna get it? Who's gonna get it? See, the problem in his life was he had laid up treasure for himself, Jesus says, but he wasn't rich toward God. He had lived his whole life through this lens of self-sufficiency and self-dependence. And in the end, it was futile, and it cost him his life and his even, even his soul. It's an important backdrop for us as we start to look into this last church in Revelation chapter three, the church at Laodicea. It is the last of the churches to which Jesus speaks and and uh, at least by my reading, the most severe of the messages that Jesus has to deliver, in similar fashion to Sardis that we looked at last time, he he doesn't have anything really good to say to this church. Only challenges. And so it's a sad thing to read. It's a frightening thing to consider. It would be a terrifying message to hear if that was the evaluation that Christ had for your church. And it would be a terrifying thing to hear if that was the evaluation that Christ had for your life. But before we dive into the actual evaluation, we need to know just a little bit about Laodicea. If you were to look at the map, we followed the the, the red line there from, from John on Patmos over to Ephesus all the way around now. To Laodicea, the furthest out of the churches, Laodicea was a, a, a few just a simple few things you need to know about this city it was a It was a banking center it was a wealthy, wealthy city. It was a, a city where banking was very important, and people stored up their wealth and It was a place where people came to store wealth and to accumulate wealth and to grow their wealth. It was situated right at the crossroads of three main highways, so there was trade coming from every direction. It was a convenient place, but it was a wealthy, well-to-do city. It was also a fashion center kind of a place. There was something unique about this particular city. They had developed a a, a unique type of wool that was sort of a glossy black in color that was unique to that particular area, and they had created from that all sorts of of fabrics that could be made, and, and so they had this tremendous trade in this very highly sought-after black wool that was extremely rare and extremely valuable. They wove it into their clothing, and that gave them something unique. You know, you lived in Laodicea, you had the black wool woven into your clothing. It showed that you were a person of wealth and a person of status, that you had this very, very rare kind of a a thing to be able to put on that people around the world uh, sought after. It was very expensive if you didn't live in Laodicea. It was something for which the city was famous and had become very wealthy. It, it certainly had added to the wealth of the city, and the people were very, very proud of this black wool that they that they wore, and they wore it proudly as a as a badge of their wealth and of their importance to the world. And, and another thing that was unique to Laodicea it was it was known as sort of a medical city. Uh, they had developed uh, a, a, a this sort of an eye salve that was developed out of a medical center that had sort of developed within one of the pagan temples. And it was an eye salve that had medicinal value that uh, apparently had brought relief to people who had sorts of different kinds of eye infections. And so it was also a unique invention for the time. And it was, again, another item that was sought after. It was something that was a commodity that they had developed that was unique and were exporting all over the place. And it made the city well-known. So that's what really, as far as the backdrop goes, that's what you need to know. Religiously, very similar to some of the other cities we've seen. uh, Vast pagan worship all around. There's a a large Jewish population there, although they've largely accommodated themselves to the culture. Um, But in very similar ways, the religiosity of the place sort of plays out like the others. Uh, But what stands out about Laodicea is its wealth. Uh, it's, it's, it's unique industry because that's going to be important to understanding what Jesus specifically says as he tailors sort of his remarks to this particular city. You could go to Turkey today and you could see some of the ruins of, of uh, Laodicea that have been developed. A sign of its wealth, you can see this tremendous uh, Colosseum that they had built there that's been unearthed. And certainly in its, uh, in its earlier days was a, was a glorious place to be able to, to go. And again, a sign of the wealth of the city. Uh, there are some other sort of ruins and remains you could see the city, a, a main street that goes right down there that they've sort of excavated and given you some sense of, you know, sort of the, the columns and the, the glorious lining of the, the walkway in and then just some more sort of um, uh, idea of the surrounding area there uh, at Laodicea. And it's to this wealthy church, it's to this Church that's well known for this famous industry that Jesus speaks. The church exists inside the city. And you know, it's, 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 we're going to find here something that I think is fairly true and fairly uh, conventional, at least uh, throughout these letters and probably throughout time, that the church tends to reflect the culture around it unless they intentionally try to be countercultural in their culture. That's a lot of words for culture. But you get the idea. Uh, And what we're going to find is this church at Laodicea has done just that very thing. They have accommodated the culture and the problems that are endemic to the culture around them in this city are problems that are now problems for the church. They haven't been able to resist the things that are happening around them. In fact, they've embraced them. And so Jesus writes to the church and he evaluates them and he identifies himself in the beginning just like he does to all the others. He says in verse 14 to the angel of the church at Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Some of this is similar to how he's identified himself before. He's certainly called himself the faithful and true witness. We've seen that as we've worked our way through the first couple of chapters here. It's just a reminder, again, that he knows the truth. Jesus knows the truth. He's faithful and he's true. This church we're going to see, like the church we saw last week, is also very self-deceived. They the lies about themselves and they fooled themselves into believing everything is great when everything is, in fact, not great. And Jesus reminds them that he's the one who's faithful and he's the one who's true. He's the one who understands and knows the truth. He's not deceived at all. He knows the truth about them. There's nothing they can do to evade what he's getting ready to say to them. And he knows the truth because he's witnessed the truth. He's seen it. Their behavior has not escaped his sight. It's not secondhand or thirdhand knowledge. He's witnessed what they've done. He knows their deeds. And he knows the truth. He's identified here as the words of the amen. That's unique in all of the New Testament, really, as as an identifier for Christ here in this verse. Um, There's a Hebrew background to this that we won't spend a lot of time on it, but uh, you can trace that out on your own in the Old Testament, the identification of this word, the amen, with God. It's a word that literally just means, it carries the idea of affirmation, of affirmation, it carries the idea that something is valid, that something is binding, that something is affirmed, that it's fixed, that it's unchangeable, that it's true. And Jesus identifying himself this way is saying, I'm the one who is the amen. I am the one who is the affirmation of all that God is. I am the one who in me, really in the embodiment of who I am and what I say and what I do, you find a validation of all that God is. It's another way of being able to say that it's through Jesus that all of God's promises and all of God's covenant, uh, covenants are fulfilled and guaranteed in him. He's the amen, the fulfillment of all that is God. All of his promises, all of his covenants are affirmed in Christ, validated in Christ, fixed in him. He's the Amen. He also identifies himself here as the beginning of God's creation. This is one of the verses that's often taken out of context. If you ever are at home on a, on a Saturday and the doorbell rings and you open the door to people standing in front of you with books wanting to talk to you about religious things, they might point you to this verse, if they're Jehovah's Witnesses or if they happen to be uh, Mormons. They'll point to this verse, and they'll try to explain to you that, see here, what John is saying is that Jesus really is not eternal God in human flesh, that he's a created being, that he's the first of God's creations. Because see, here in the text, he identifies himself as the beginning of God's creation. Therefore, that means Jesus was created, not eternal God. He's not a part of the Godhead. Many are fooled by that. Uh, because they're working specifically from the English, and those who, who would argue such things know that they're manipulating a translation rather than dealing with integrity, the original. The word arche is the word that's translated there. It's a word that really biblically doesn't indicate much of anything about chronology. It doesn't have really anything to say in general about timing or chronology. In fact, it has a, a whole different kind of a meaning. It, it's a word that carries the idea of preeminence or priority, It conveys the idea of first cause or origin rather than first chronologically. It's the same idea that that Paul is, is articulating when he writes to the church in Colossae, which was not far from Laodicea. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus says and following, he is the image of the invisible God. This is Paul writing of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, The same thing here it's that same word that carries the idea he's the he's the one who's preeminent over all creation he's the one who has priority over all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible invisible thrones dominions rulers authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together He's the beginning at the end of this verse, verse 18. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The issue isn't he was the first one chronologically created. The issue is he is the one who is the first origin of all things in and of himself, and he is the one who stands in preeminence over all the rest of creation. In fact, it conveys the exact opposite of what the Mormon at your door will tell you. It's an affirmation of Christ's deity As the firstborn, as the beginning of God's creation, as it's conveyed here in the ESV, Jesus has supreme authority over creation, and he is the one that is the originator of it all. It's an important thought, and it's an important sort of identification. Because as we walk through this letter to the church at Laodicea, we're going to find that this church is literally rife with self-sufficiency, And Jesus needs to remind him that he's the one who's the originator of all creation. That all things come from him. And so he identifies himself as such. Again, in the earlier letters, we would see a commendation after the identification of the author, right? We would see, you know, there's some things good going on in your church. You know, you're loving or you're persevering, or something along those lines, but here there's absolutely nothing good to say. Christ skips beyond any, any kind words or any good things. I mean, even in our last letter, the church at Sardis, there wasn't really any good thing to say at the beginning, but at the end, we got something that was at least relatively good, and that church, you remember, there still were a few people in the church, he says, that hadn't soiled their garments There was still a a little remnant within that church that that there was hope, right? There were still some people who were sort of a a shining bright light in the midst of a darkened church. But we don't even find that at Laodicea. There's literally nothing good here. And so he jumps right into the challenges. He says, know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. This church is a very, very serious problem. It's a very serious problem. And he identifies the problem right at the shoot, and he doesn't beat around the bush, and he doesn't soften the blow. He says, here's my evaluation of you. You're not hot, you're not cold, you are lukewarm. Lukewarm is not a term we use all that often, but it's a term that I trust you're familiar with, right? Lukewarm, you know what that conveys? Frankly, nothing is really good lukewarm. Can you think of anything that's good lukewarm? At least as far as food goes. I mean, you either want your food hot or you want it cold. You don't really want it lukewarm. I mean, I like to drink coffee and, and there's a lot of people who like to drink coffee apparently these days because there's coffee shops everywhere and you can go into a coffee shop and you can eat you a nice piping hot cup of coffee or any number of varieties of coffee popping, piping hot or you can go into Starbucks and you can, they have this thing that, that I think some deranged people drink somewhere that's called cold brew. I don't know why you'd want that but it's a kind of coffee that's served cold and um, maybe if you live somewhere where it's really hot, you want the cold brew. You can get good coffee, apparently, that's cold brewed, and you can get it that's hot. But nobody, and I mean nobody, I've been to Starbucks and coffee shops a lot. I've never heard anyone walk in the door and say, yes, I'd like a grande lukewarm latte, please. <laughs> nobody ever says that. You don't want something that's lukewarm. I like soup. Hot soup is good. But if you've ever been in a restaurant, and you ordered soup, and you go take a bite of it, and it's just kind of room temperature or lukewarm, it's just like, oh, what is this? not good. It's not good. I can remember when I was at, in Bahrain in the, uh, the hot months of the summer when it was really hot. One of the things that they had done to sort of help with that is strategically throughout the, the installation they had placed these big um, uh, like coolers with doors that you open up that are full, full of bottled water. That would be cold, and so they were strategically pl- placed around the base so that when you were walking around in the in the heat of the day, you could get, grab one on the go and, and get some uh, you know refreshing drink of cold water. And it was really great that they did that. It was helpful, very helpful, because it's important in, in places like that to stay hydrated for your health. And it was also just refreshing when it's hot. And, and but what would happen inevitably in a base full of uh, navy personnel uh, of, of all? shapes and sizes and intellects and, and so forth, you would, you would find somebody would go buy one of those things and they'd grab a, a bottle of cold water and they'd leave the door like that open so that, you know, it sat there all day like that. And you'd be walking around the base, you know, boiling hot, dripping sweat, and you'd see that cooler in the distance, you'd be like, oh, I need a refreshing drink of water. And you'd go reach in and you'd grab one and it would be like warm, warm. And you, and you start saying ugly things under your breath about whoever that sailor was that did that. I hope I find him. I'm gonna do nasty things to this guy who opened this up. I was looking for a refreshing cold drink of water and I got lukewarm, nasty. You ever had, you ever done, you ever had a drink that, that you go to grab and you think it's one thing and you're expecting something cold and you, you grab it and you drink it and it's not or you think it's hot and you drink it and it, it just makes you make a face and you just wanna literally spit it out. Enough nothing's good lukewarm. So it's not a compliment when Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, you're lukewarm. Apparently, historically, things weren't good that way either. Now, many miss the point when teaching this text. And I have to say, I don't know that I fully captured it myself uh, in reading through it in, in previous times. But th- the way that this sort of gets sort of cast in a lot of ways, and maybe you've heard it taught this way, is that that we should understand the hot and the cold here that Jesus is talking about as sort of a reflection of their spiritual fervor that the issue here is spiritual fervor that 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 you know hot would be on fire for Jesus right and cold would be sort of dead and indifferent maybe even completely lost To the things of Christ. And lukewarm would sort of capture the idea of people who were on the fence. They weren't really on fire for Jesus, but they really hadn't rejected him outright. They were just sort of in the middle, lukewarm. I've heard it taught that way many times over the years, and in studying this week, read that some as well. Um, But one of the things that sort of always bugged me in the back of my mind and thinking through the text that way was why would Jesus say, I wish you were, I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm? Why would Christ want someone to be completely indifferent rather than just on the fence? Why would it be better for someone to be absolutely rejecting Christ than to be somewhere in the middle? Now, there are a lot of people who have explanations to answer that question. I, I don't find them satisfying, to be honest with you. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is speaking to here at all. I know the issue isn't a spiritual fervor. There's another problem that's a worse problem. By the way, I don't deny that being sort of on the fence is a, a bad place to be. The Bible speaks to that issue in plenty of other places as well. So, but that's not what's being captured here, I don't believe. The issue is different. It's not an issue of spiritual fervor. It's an issue of self-sufficiency. Let me get you there. The historical context and the cultural context helps us get to this here. I told you already that this is a wealthy and and prestigious sort of a city. But this city has one really bad problem that was a bad problem for cities in their day. And the problem was their water supply. They had a bad water supply. Um... They had no natural source of water. And so you can see the picture here. They, the city, they literally had to pipe in water from six miles away at another town that had a hot spring. And they had built these remarkably innovative aqueducts. Can you imagine? Any of you who's ever worked on plumbing before in modern days? Can you imagine piping water like that? through You know, these, these stone and terracotta pipes that you run, some of it underground and some of it above ground? Uh, but they had no natural source, so they had to pipe it in and this sort of thing, and it ran along an, an aqueduct. You can see another picture of, of one of these you know, uh, sort of terracotta pipes that, that they were using to pipe in their water. But the water came from a hot spring six miles away across an aqueduct that they had built and through ki- this kind of piping into Laodicea. But by the time it left the hot spring and traveled through the aqueduct six miles and it got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. It was just, guess what? It was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. And as they've done excavation of the pipes, like you saw there, one of the things that they noticed in the pipe is these pipes were caked with all sorts of mineral sediment. It made it very clear and evident that this water that was being piped in from this particular hot spring was full of sediment, and they were well known for having nasty water. And it was because it wasn't clean and pure water. It had this, you know, if you've ever lived somewhere where you maybe had a well And you have like that sulfur smell and sulfur taste to it here. So think about that ramped up about 20 times because this water is mineral-laden, coming from a hot spring. It's going six miles, and it gets there, and it's really nasty water. It tastes terrible. Uh, It was well-known as being sort of tepid and repulsive to drink. And it stood in great contrast to two other cities that were nearby. So just a few miles away was the city of Hierapolis, And Heropolis was known because they had a very famous hot spring there. It was sort of a resort town that people traveled to uh, to go get into the hot springs because they believed that it had sort of healing qualities, medicinal value. And so people came from all around to get into the hot springs because it had healing properties. And so it was something that drew people, that hot water in in Heropolis. But if you went in the other direction, to Colossae, to whom Paul wrote, they were known for the opposite. They were, they, that city was built right next to a, a, a very large mountain, and their water supply was, was water runoff from the mountains, and it was this cool, refreshing, wonderful-tasting water that had run down that mountain and came straight into Colossae. And so they were well-known for their, their great, cool, refreshing drinking water. It was great tasting. If you've ever been up to, like, the mountains somewhere in the U.S., and you've gotten some of that cold mountain water that comes down, it's... It's refreshing and good and, and worth going to get. And so the contrast here is really remarkable. You have hot water from Heropolis that was really useful. It was useful for healing and it was sought after. You have cold water coming from Colossae that was useful. It was cold and refreshing and helpful and good. But in contrast to those, you have the water of Laodicea that's lukewarm and tepid and nasty and utterly useless The contrast was clear and Jesus is reviewing the church and he's saying to the church, hey church in Laodicea, when I look at you, you're a lot like the water in your city. You're lukewarm, you're disgusting, you're useless. I'd rather you, I, I, you know, I, I'd rather you be hot. I'd rather you be hot like Hierapolis. At least that hot water is good for something. It's useful. Or cold like Colase. It's cold and refreshing. It's useful. It does something good. It provides a good benefit. You're just lukewarm. It's utterly useless and nasty, and disgusting. And like people do with your water, I'm going to do with you. I'm going to spit you out. Summarize all that down to a simple translation. You're a useless church. You make me sick. You make me sick. You make me want to vomit you out of my mouth. The issue here, because he begins by saying, I know your works, is not so much spiritual fervor as it is barren works, useless works. This is a church that was active, It's a church that was materially prosperous and yet their works were totally ineffective, useless, in fact sickening to Christ. Horrible condition for a church to be in. To be busy and to be active, to be wealthy and to be working, and it all to be a complete and utter waste of time and energy. In fact, to fancy yourself being the cream of the crop when in reality you're just nauseating the Lord. You might ask yourself, well, why was this church so distasteful to Christ? Why were their works such a problem? I'm glad you asked that question. It's in verse 17 that we find the answer to that question. Jesus continues, and he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Does that sound like the man that we talked about in Luke chapter 12? I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I don't need a thing. I've got everything I need. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a description. Here's the problem. This is a church that's busy and wealthy and active and Christ is, is disgusted with them because they're lukewarm. Their works are literally useless and they're useless because they're completely done in a spirit of utter self-sufficiency. They're operating solely out of the flesh with not a shred of dependency on Christ. They look at themselves in the mirror and they say, we're rich, we're prosperous, we don't need a thing. We've done everything for ourselves. We've done everything for ourselves. We don't need to look to Christ for anything. We don't need to depend on Christ for a thing. They're rich and they think they've got everything they need. Their money had given them a sense of false security. And God had warned his people about this long, long ago. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter eight, you remember when, when God was leading his people into the promised land and he knew. He knew what was getting ready to happen when they entered the promised land and things got better for them. He knew that there was a temptation Toward self-sufficiency, and so he warns the Israelites severely, beginning in verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, listen, he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. That's what happens. You get wealthy and you no longer feel like you need anything. And the longer you go feeling like you don't need anything, it doesn't take very long to forget how much you really need God. And you forget who's the source of all the stuff that you have. Forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness uh, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. You see, that's what happens. The Lord blesses and the Lord blesses and the Lord prospers and the Lord prospers and the next thing you know, you're looking in the mirror going, man, I've done pretty well for myself. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you power to get wealth. And he does it that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. It's the pattern that plays out all throughout the Old Testament. Prosperity leads to forgetfulness, Forgetfulness leads to pride, Pride leads to self-sufficiency. And that's exactly what had happened to this church. Like their city, they were wealthy and self-sufficient, didn't think they needed anything from God, and so they no longer looked to Him for anything. They operated utterly out of the flesh. So self-sufficient, this is an attitude of the city. This city was so wealthy in 60 A.D., A.D. 60, there was a, an earthquake that devastated the city and Rome had offered assistance to rebuild the city and this city was so wealthy and self-sufficient that they literally denied Rome and said, we don't need your, your government assistance, if you will. We'll rebuild the city on our own and they did. It was this independent spirit of self-sufficiency that had infiltrated the church And now this church is operating completely out of the flesh. There's no room for faith whatsoever. They don't believe they need faith. They've got everything they need. They don't need a thing. They're not looking to God for anything. Faith, by definition, is trusting God to provide your needs, to provide your power for your ministry. You need faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, is what the New Testament teaches. And when you have everything you need, you look at yourself and you begin to operate in such a way that you don't need faith anymore, you don't operate on faith anymore because you don't think you need anything anymore. This church doesn't really need God. In fact, they don't think they need anything. They're just fine. They've got everything under control. Faith always involves a level of risk. There's always an element of trusting God to provide in faith. Always. If there's not an element of risk, if there's not an element of trusting in there, then it's not living by faith, it's living by sight. We're living by sight when we can see how everything is going to turn out. When we have all the stuff up front that we need to succeed and we operate off of that sort of platform, we're operating by sight. Operating by faith is moving forward uh, to the call that God has placed in front of you, knowing that you don't have everything you need, knowing that what you have is insufficient for the call, trusting that God is going to then provide you and looking to him every step of the way to make it happen. That's not how this church is operating they're not looking to Christ. They're looking to themselves. Some examples. We think of Abraham. Back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. We're told Abraham by faith obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. God called Abraham said, Abraham, I want you to go to this land that I've designed for you, take off and go. He doesn't give him a map, he just tells him the general direction and says take off and Abraham has a choice. Am I gonna live by faith or am I gonna live by sight? Living by faith looks like packing up your family and heading in that direction and trusting that God is gonna give you the details along the way and get you to your destination. That's what Abraham did. It's what Jesus did with his disciples when they had encountered the big crowd of 5,000 people that were hungry and they said to Jesus, these people are hungry, we don't have any food and Jesus says to them, I got an idea, you go feed them. But Jesus, all we have is a few fish and some bread. Go feed them. Okay? And so you start feeding them and the next thing you know, God provides. That's operating by faith. This is the opposite of this church. This church is operating solely in the flesh. Absolutely solely in the flesh completely self-sufficient and the sort of the linchpin of that is in verse 20 the saddest reality of all Jesus Christ pictured standing outside the door of the church behold I stand at the door and knock in relation to this church where is Christ is he on the inside or is he on the outside he's on the outside isn't he This church has so marginalized Christ that he has no place inside the ministry of the church. He's outside knocking on the door to see if anybody cares to hear what he has to say. In their self-sufficiency, they've completely pushed Christ out. The word that matters in this church is not the word of Christ. The will that matters inside this church is not the will of Christ. The mission that matters on the inside of this church is not the mission of Christ. The vision for the future of this church is not the vision of Christ. He's not even consulted. He's not even in the room. He's outside the building. And it appears that this is true of the whole entire church because Jesus shifts from the plural to the singular. And he says, if anyone, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him." It's as though he's on the outside banging on the door politely and saying, hey, does anybody in there care what I think? Does anybody in there care what I want? Does anybody in there need what I have to give? Is there anybody? Will anybody come to the door and listen to me? Will anybody come and consult me? Will anybody come and seek what I think and what I feel and what I want and what my mission is for the place? What a sad commentary on a church. A church that is not, it's the opposite of Christ centered. It's Christ excluded. They've been able to maintain a busy ministry apart from Christ. A church where Jesus is on the outside is an absolute joke. It's not a church. And it's disgusting to Christ. It's a waste. It's a, it's an exercise uh, in absolute futility. It might be busy, it might be big, it might be wealthy, it might have a lot of people, it may have a great reputation, but at the end of the day it makes Christ sick and he wants to spit it out of his mouth. What a sad commentary on a place that bears the name of church. This church is in danger. It's in danger. They're uttering, uh, operating utterly on the flesh. And Jesus says that there's still hope, but here's what you need to do, verses 18 and 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and Repent. These people thought they had it all, man. They thought they were on the top of the world. And Jesus says to them, you're lukewarm. You think you've got it all? Here's how I see you. You're blind, you're naked, you're pitiful, and you're poor. Those words were carefully chosen by Christ, right? Because this city prided itself on its wealth, but Jesus says, and the kind of wealth that matters, you're utterly poor. They prided themselves on their on their black wool clothing, and Jesus says, when I look at you spiritually, you're naked, you're shameful and exposed. They prided themselves on this eye salve that could restore people's sight, and Jesus says, when I look at your church, you know what you are, you're utterly blind. So what you need to do is you need to go on a shopping trip, but you need to change suppliers. You need to come shopping for the things that I can give you. Oh, and by the way, your earthly wealth that you've stored up for yourself, it's utterly useless currency in my world. You need to come buy from me gold. He calls it gold refined in the fire. It's another way of saying what Jesus said in his ministry when he said you need to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth where it's subject to decay. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You've been, you've been pursuing the wrong kind of wealth and you need to come to me and you need to pursue the wealth that I can provide, a spiritual wealth that endures, the wealth of the soul that you're utterly poor in. You need to come to me and buy for me white garments, Jesus says, to people who are really fancy about their black wool. He says you probably need to put off your, your, your fancy to do black clothes and come buy the white garments from me. White garments all throughout Revelation speak of righteousness and purity. Just stop prancing yourself and parading parading yourself around like you're somebody in your fancy clothes. What you really need is righteousness. You're running around in your black clothes and all that does is show everybody what's really happening inside your heart. What you need is righteousness and it only comes to me and your money can't buy it. And he says you need to come buy salve for me so you can see. For any human being to ever see the way Christ sees, he must open the eyes. It's a divine work to see and and perceive and understand the truth. And these people are utterly self-deceived. And they can put all the eye ointment that they make on their eyes that they want and they'll never be able to see. The only way they'll ever be able to see is if they come to Christ and get from him what he has to give. But it's not all lost, is it? He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, there's still opportunity. I'll come into him. I'll eat with him. To eat with him is to share the main meal of the day, to sit down around the table and fellowship as brothers around the table. He hasn't completely sealed off the opportunity for this church. He may not be active in the church, but he hasn't left town. If anybody in this little church will open up the door and seek him, they'll find him. It's a sad, sad commentary on a church. To be busy and to be active and to be wealthy and to do all of that that operating in utter self-sufficiency, not looking to Christ for one doggone thing and thinking everything's fine. What they needed was to be like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. This gives us a great picture of what this church needed. Verse nine, Jesus said, excuse me, Luke records, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treating others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice, twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Again, another man who thinks he's pleasing God by operating in utter self-sufficiency of his own human works. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what the church at Laodicea needed a dose of. Tax collectors were wealthy people too. But this tax collector was one who recognized that all the wealth that he had accumulated in his life by all sorts of means did not do one thing for his soul but condemn it. And so he understood that he needed to run to Christ and that he couldn't buy from Christ anything from his wealth, that his only hope was to plead for Christ to do for him what he could never do for himself, to depend fully on Christ rather than to keep depending on his own self. Christ, be merciful to me, God. I'm a sinner. I don't have any hope. My only hope is you, to depend on you. The heart of the gospel is not self-sufficiency. It's always self-denial. That's how we come to Christ, deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Christ, depending upon him every step of the way. Every step of the way. That's what the church in Laodicea needs and it's what they're blind to. They're operating like the Pharisee in the parable. They think they're paragons of virtue and a church that should be envied, when in reality they're nauseating Christ. There's only one way to come to Christ and that's denying yourself. Recognizing that you're a sinner who has no hope. There's nothing you can do. There's no way by your own human effort that you can save yourself. You can't do enough good. You can't become religious enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't do good for other people enough. Your only hope is to look to the cross of Jesus Christ where the Son of God died and shed his own blood for your sins to pay the full price, a price that you could never pay and to submit your heart and your life to him trusting in what he did for you not trusting in what you do for him. That is the place where you have to enter a relationship with Christ and it's only on a foundation of dependency upon Christ that a church can do anything that's meaningful in the world. And so it begs the question as we sort of bring this to a conclusion here. What does this have to say about us? What are some questions that we need to ask ourselves congregationally and individually? Maybe some questions like this. In what ways are our self-sufficiency blinding us to reality? Are there ways that I'm trusting in myself rather than trusting in Christ? Are there ways in which we are not living by faith? but rather by sight. Is there any place in our lives and in the life of our congregation where we are moving in a direction knowing that if Christ doesn't come through, we're done? Or do we have to count all the dollars and weigh all the risks and make sure there's no possibility of failure before we take a step? It's the difference between self-sufficiency and walking by faith. And it's the difference between pleasing Christ and nauseating him, personally and corporately. I pray that Christ would give us eyes to see this morning where we are. Lord Jesus, you are glorious. And I can't think of a more horrifying evaluation for a church than for you to say that you have no place on the inside. That you're on the outside speaking, but nobody's listening. That you're on the outside with your power and your glory and your majesty and your truth and nobody's paying one bit of attention. Just operating in the flesh, walking by sight. Lord, I pray that that's not the reality of our congregation. I pray that we look to you in every single thing. I pray that we live daily, weekly, monthly, yearly with the reality that if you don't provide for us, we're done. That if you don't supply truth, if you don't supply vision, if you don't supply every provision we need along the way we'll never ever do anything that's meaningful for your kingdom. Give us courage and give us faith to seek your face. May the first question not be something material but the first question be what would Christ say? What does Christ want? What would Christ do? And I pray for my friends individually Lord that As we evaluate our own faith and our own walk with you and we look at the foundation of it, that our foundation is clear that we are depending on you, that we have truly denied ourselves, taken up our cross and are following after you. Looking to you for the foundation of our faith. Looking to you to save us, not our works, not our efforts, not our money. Lord, if we're living with that kind of a blindness on a personal level, I pray that you'd peel back the scales from our eyes. Help us to see the truth. We want to be a church and we want to be Christians who please you, not ones who make you sick. So show us the truth even if it hurts. And we thank you for your promise of hope that anyone who listens, that anyone who opens the door finds a welcoming arm from you, one who's willing to walk in and have a meal and share fellowship and re-enter the heart of the matter where you belong to begin with. Lord, I pray that you would draw us this morning to confession, repentance, and response, however it is that you read our hearts and know that we need to respond. Don't let us resist you this morning, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.